Amen. So Genesis chapter 22. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how many of you here tonight enjoy tests. Anybody enjoy tests? Are there anybody here that like back in school, you're just like, oh, a test, goody. I'm like, those were not my friends, I'll tell you that much. Uh, yeah, okay, some of you, uh, that wasn't me. They can be nerve-wracking and very tricky. There was a juggler that was driving to his next performance, and he was stopped on the road by, by a police. And the police came up to the car, and he looked in the back seat, and he see, sees all these machetes in the back seat. And the cop says, what are you doing with all these machetes in your car? And the man said, well, I'm a, I'm a juggler. And, and the cop says, Really, he's kind of doubtful about it. Like, really, you're a juggler? Let's see, get out of the car, let me see you juggle these things. And so the juggler got out of the side of the road, he starts juggling his machetes as another car drives by. He looks and he says, I'm so glad I gave up drinking. They have sure picked up those roadside tests these days. (laughs) Tests are not always fun, but they're necessary to see our progress and our growth. And for this reason, God has Abraham, as we look back on the, the life of Abraham in Genesis 22, as we've been the last few times in our study through Genesis, as we look at the life of Abraham, God is having Abraham going through some more tests. He's already had Abraham go through a series of tests, and the biggest one of which is going to be coming here in Genesis chapter 22. Notice it says there that after these things that God tested Abraham, right at the beginning of verse 1 there. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. After these things indicates that Abraham has already been through a bit of a time of testing in his life. He was called to leave the Ur of the Chaldees and to go to a land that he did not know. So there's a test right there. Abraham, are you going to move by faith? Are you going to trust the Lord? He was given a promise then that God was going to bless him as a mighty nation. He's got no kids. And God says, I'm going to make of you a mighty nation. Yet he would have to wait 25 years from the time that promise was given to the time when Isaac, his son, would actually be born. He'd have to wait until he was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old. Those are not your typical child-rearing years, right? And so Abraham is being tested all along the way here of seeing God's promise. Then Abraham would be tested by having to circumcise himself even before Isaac was born. If he believes he's going to be procreating, this is not an act that you want to have to be doing. That required some faith, didn't it? But as we saw last time in Genesis chapter 21, Isaac arrives. He's the son of promise. It's a miraculous birth as Sarah's 90 years old, Abraham's 100 years old, and Isaac is now the one that's going to see the progeny of Abraham increase. However, another test comes now, and perhaps the most difficult one of them all. See, Abraham's had quite a roller coaster ride on that train of faith so far, hasn't he? Some of us can associate, can, can kind of, you know, identify with Abraham a little bit with some of these ups and the downs that he's had to go through. He's had moments of great faith. He's also had moments of compromised faith. But there are experiences that God has taken Abraham through to prepare him for the greatest of tests. And in so doing... We're not only given a wonderful example of faith, but we're also given a glorious picture here in Genesis 22 of what God has done for us. We see the gospel in Genesis so clearly here in Genesis 22. Listen, we are all, as believers in the Lord, we're on an incredible journey here that we call the Christian walk. It's filled with joy, filled with a heartache, it's filled with uneasiness, and yet excitement so much of the time. It's illustrated for us very clearly 
in one of the greatest accounts of Scripture here in Genesis 22. And in it, we see three things that mark the Christian walk. First of all, we see it's a journey of testing. Secondly, we see it's a journey of trust. And thirdly, we're going to see it's a journey of triumph. Through Abraham's life seen in Genesis 22, we see that our Christian walk is oftentimes marked by these things. It's a journey of test, of testing. It's a journey of trust. It's a journey of triumph. Look at verse 1 and 2 again with me. It says this, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham, like I said, is given the hardest of tests right now that any person would have to endure. I remember some, some hard tests in my school days. <laughs> tests where I'm sitting there showing up and I'm like looking at this test going, when did we even cover this in class? It was like all new to me. I'm like, what? Was I sleeping? Most of the time I was, but I'm like, I've never seen this stuff before. I'm having to try to fill out answers that I have no idea about. But those hard tests do not compare one iota to what Abraham is having to endure here. This test of Abraham eclipses all of those challenges by a landslide. Now, you might be asking yourself, why do we have to go through tests? I don't like that word, test. I don't like having to go through tests. Well, here's what testing does. Tests prove us. They qualify us. It lets us realize, ah, I get it now. I, I understand. It, it produces that growth in us. See, God wants us to know him more and to continually be growing in him and trusting him and tests strengthen our faith in God. If you're reading in the King James Version, you're going to see an interesting word. It says that God tempted, tempted Abraham. Now, that does not refer to an evil of some sort. We know that God does not tempt people with sin in a sense what that word tempting really means is it's testing satan tempts us as james 1 tells us but satan tempts us to bring out the worst god tests us however to bring out the best in us this is the difference here this is not a tempting that god's trying to trip up abraham it's a test to say i want to see you grow i want to see something good come out of you in, in maturity and, and faith as it increases now this test of abraham was a unique one. Because in this test here that we're going to be looking at, Abraham is going to be experiencing the heart of the Father. You see, God allowed Abraham into a special invitation, a special experience of going through what God himself would have to endure in giving up his son. It's known as the fellowship of suffering. You know that to be true when you share an experience with another person that's gone through a a, a season of, of grief or gone through some kind of heartache very similar to what you yourself have endured and you experience there's, there's this instant kind of bond because you understand they know the same pain that you know. They've been through the same trial and a heartache that you've been through. And there's this bond that links you together through that fellowship of suffering. And God is inviting Abraham into that. I think of what Paul says in Romans 8. Verse 16 and 18, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and are children and heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Listen, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And then Paul would also say in Philippians 3, 
verse 10 to 11, that I may know him and the power of his, resur- of his resurrection and, notice that, the fellowship of his sufferings. Why would anybody wish that? Paul says, because then I know God in a deeper way. I want to know him not only, not only in the power of his, of his resurrection, but the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, verse 12 to 13, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You see, there's something that takes place in our relationship with the Lord when we go through an encounter, a time of fellowship of suffering, when we begin to have a deeper understanding of what God's been through, of what God has experienced, we begin to know God in a more deeper and intimate way. That's what God allowed Jose to do, isn't it? When he says, Hosea, I want you to marry an unfaithful wife. Why, God? I don't want to do that. Because this is what I've experienced with Israel, God says. I've experienced Israel being unfaithful to me. And Hosea, you're going to be a living testimony, a picture of that, but you're going to also be brought into this fellowship of suffering to have a deeper understanding of the heart of God, to grow you in a deeper, more intimate relationship with him. Now, some of you might be thinking, man, if that's what the Christian life is like, I don't know if I want anything to do with that. I thought life in Christ would be a cakewalk. I thought everything was going to be wonderful and rosy and comfortable, tiptoeing through the tulips. I don't know about this fellowship of suffering business. But God did not give Abraham something he wasn't already ready for. Notice what we read there in verse 1. It came to pass after these things. After what things? After all those previous tests prepared Abraham for the big one. God wasn't throwing something on to make Abraham fail. He was bringing something Abraham's way to reveal something in Abraham and through Abraham and to grow him into a more deeper, closer, strengthened, more strengthened relationship with him. Abraham, you see, has been through the school of faith over the last 25 plus years. It's been a time of learning to trust in the Lord and walk in obedience. It was a time of of preparing for this very test, which would confirm that he has learned what God wants to see developed in him. See, God doesn't put everybody through the same test. Instead, they're tailor-made for you to help you grow closer to God and mature as a believer. God knows exactly what he's doing. God's not going to give you anything that you're not able to endure or that he hasn't previously prepared you for or equipped you to go through. Now, one of the things that Abraham had to learn was dependence on God to bring about his promise. Notice what God says. Hey, Abraham, I know you've been waiting. It's been hard waiting for this promised child to come. But now that Isaac is here, I want you to take now your son, your only son. And basically, God's going to tell him, I want you to sacrifice him. Think about that. Now, we're going to get into into that here a little bit, but it's interesting what God says. Take now your son, your only son. Why is it interesting? Because Abraham had another son, Ishmael. Abraham's got two sons. Why is Isaac referred to as his only son? Because remember, Ishmael was a product of the flesh. Ishmael came as a result of Sarah and Abraham saying, we don't know if we can trust God. We're getting old. We're getting past the years of being able to have children we better help God out. Abraham, take Hagar. 
have a child with her. This will be our child. This will be the promised child that God said we'll have. They decided to help God out. They weren't led of the Spirit. They weren't walking in faith and trust. Ishmael was a product of the flesh, and God never recognizes a product of the flesh. How often do we come and say, God, look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Would you bless it? And God isn't going to bless a product of the flesh. God wants us to be moving in the Spirit, flowing in the Spirit, allowing the Spirit to work in us to bring about the fruit that's not manufactured through our own means. So it says, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Now this is so fascinating because this is the first time that love is used in the Old Testament. First time in the Bible that we see the word love, and it's introduced here in Genesis 22. And the first occurrence of the word usually sets the pattern for how it's going to be used throughout the Bible. So it's important to take note of these things when you see them. It's interesting that the first use of love is used between a father and a son. Again, it's a sweet foreshadowing of the love that would be on display between the father and the son. The first time we see that word love used in the Gospel of John is in John 3.16. You all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first time that that word is used took place at Jesus' baptism when the Father speaks saying, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, God's love for his son is immense. But imagine the way his love was put on display for you and me in that he was willing to give up his son. I want you to, I want you to, to grasp this. First time this word love is used between a father and a son, the first time we see it in the Gospels is all about God's relationship to the son, whom he loved. But as much as he loved the son, think about how much he loved you and that he was willing to give up his son for you and for me. He was willing to sacrifice his son so that we could be spared and have life in him. That's amazing love right there. So we read at the end of verse 2 or the middle of verse 2 that Abraham's called to go to the land of Moriah. The land of Moriah. You students of the Bible will know that place. This is the place that David purchased from Ornan where the temple would be built. Second Chronicles chapter 3 verse 1 lays that out for us here. David bought this threshing floor of Ornan that the temple would eventually be built upon. But it's the very place in the land of Moriah where another hill sat, Mount Calvary, where Jesus himself would be crucified on a cross for you and for me. Many believe that Abraham took Isaac to the very place where Jesus would give himself as a sacrifice on the cross. Now, can you imagine being given these instructions from the, from the Lord here? Can you imagine what Abraham's going through? Go sacrifice your son as a burnt offering to me? You'd be thinking, who spiked my water here? Am I hearing correctly? This surely can't be the voice of God telling me to do this. We would all doubt that. We'd be questioning this. We'd be going, oh man, I got to get a second opinion. I'm going to wait on that. I'm going to sit on this. If God, if this is really God, he's got to make that even more abundantly clear. We would be wanting this to be confirmed like three Four, 50 times, we'd be like, Lord, I, this, is, this is bizarre. This, this can't be of you. But look at what happens. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and then he saddled his donkey, 
and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Abraham isn't being forced to go kicking and screaming here. He makes a conscious decision to obey God without question or delay. He went forth in trust. And notice the repetition in verse 3 of that word and. It's used six times there, and it denotes a deliberate, willful act of obedience by Abraham. He rose early in the morning and settled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Abraham was walking, not questioning. At this point in his life, now he's going, man, when God speaks, I got to believe him. I got to trust him. He's telling me to go to Moriah with my son, prepared to do something I would never have imagined. And yet Abraham got up early to do this work following in obedience to the Lord. So we've seen this journey of testing. Look at this journey of trust now. Look at verse 5. And Abraham said to his young man, oh, sorry, verse verse 4 is important, right? Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. That's interesting. What's that significant of? This shadows the resurrection. Three days, Abraham traveled and walked with a heavy heart, seeing his son essentially is dead. For three days he traveled with his son, expecting and in his heart knowing that my son is going to be a dead man. For three days he walked with that heavy heart. We'll talk about that in a little bit here, but look at this journey of trust, verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Now, I want you to kind of grasp something here, because we get... This picture in our mind, of course, you know, from Sunday school, you got the flannel graphs up there. Look, there's Abraham taking his, his young little boy, Isaac, and Isaac's like, hey, Dad, where are we going? All right, this looks fun. Where are we going to do? You know, and, and Isaac's just this young little boy walking along. But what's interesting is the Hebrew word for young man that we see there is the same Hebrew word for lad. In other words, Isaac is not a young little boy. He's very potentially mid-20s, even early 30s. This is a man. This is a young man right now. I mean, everybody's young next to Abraham, but he's a young man right now. He's old. He's, he's not just kind of naively walking along under his dad's control. Isaac could have very possibly been the same age Jesus was when he was crucified. He's willingly following along with his father. And after three days... It says, Abraham took Isaac, and they went alone to worship. It's interesting, these two men that he's got, you know, no doubt servants, but it's interesting how Jesus walked, that walk to the, to the hill of Calvary with, with two men that he'd be crucified beside. So after three days, Abraham took Isaac, and they went alone to worship. Now, that's the first mention of the word worship in the Bible. How is it used? It's tied to sacrifice and surrender, isn't it? The Hebrew word for worship literally means to bow down, to bow down. Romans 12.1, reading from the New Living Translation, says this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Worship is connected to our lives being surrendered to the Lord. 
True biblical worship so satisfies our total personality that we don't have to shop around for man-made substitutes. William Temple made this clear in his masterful definition of worship. For worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all this gathered up in adoration. The most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. We oftentimes think of a great worship service as a service that had great singing, great music that really moved us. But what God sees as great worship is a heart that is fully surrendered to him. A heart that is bowed down to him in praise, in understanding that you are God and we are not. And you alone deserve our complete life. Worship to God is what we're to be conducting every minute of every day as we live our lives for him and for his glory. That's worshiping the Lord. And notice, and I love that here, what Abraham says at the end of verse 5. Hey, we're going to go yonder and worship and, what does he say? End of verse 5, and we will what? We're going to come back to you. Abraham doesn't say, hey, listen, we're going to go off and worship a little bit, and I'm, I'll be back. I was like, what about me? No, it, we will return to you. We'll come back to you. That's remarkable. Because Abraham is going to sacrifice his son, yet he says, we will come back to you. Was he giving them a false sense of assurance here? No, I believe Abraham, at this point in his life, with all that he's seen God do, had such a faith that, that God would bring Isaac even back from the dead, if that's what it took. If Abraham had to, had to lay Isaac down on the altar and sacrifice his son, that God was able to raise him from the dead. See, Abraham right now is a man that just has grown in faith. And faith sees the impossibility of man, but the possibility of God. And Abraham had no intention of carrying Isaac back in a body bag here. This much is evident through the word of God. When you read Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 17 to 19 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Remember, Isaac has not had any kids yet. He's not married. He's got no kids. If Isaac is gone, Abraham recognizes that the very promise of God to make of him a great nation is gone. Maybe Abraham's thinking, well, maybe he can have us have another kid, but 25 years has passed, at least. It's been a long time. They're getting older. Abraham is recognizing that Isaac is the one that God has said the promise would be fulfilled through. Abraham heard God say that, so Abraham recognizes whatever happens to Isaac, it cannot mean the end. See, Abraham was so convinced that Isaac's children would continue the promised bloodline that he believed God could and would raise him from the dead if needed. Even though there's been nothing at all to suggest the doctrine of a resurrection up until this point. This is a new thing they're thinking. Like, there's been no teaching of a resurrection. Abraham's not going, well, I know that God. It's like, this is a new thing. And Abraham's recognizing that God could bring him back from the dead if that's what's needed. Perhaps this is what Jesus referred to when he said in John 8, 56, 
Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham recognized that life would come through death. It's ultimately seen in and through Jesus Christ. It's been pointed out that Abraham believed God and obeyed him when he did not know where. That Hebrews chapter 11 is a great passage dealing with Abraham's life and all that we've been looking at so far in the book of Genesis. But he believed and obeyed him when he didn't know where, when he did not know when, when he did not know how, and when he did not know why. So, verse 6 goes on to say, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. Notice that the wood is laid where? On Isaac's back. Just as the son, Jesus Christ, carried the cross to the place of crucifixion, he bore that cross upon his shoulders and became the, the burnt offering for us. The burnt offering speaks of complete dedication, and Jesus gave himself fully and completely. The fire speaks of judgment. Again, Jesus took the, the brunt of the wrath of God that was deserved for our sins. He took the bullet for us. He stood in that line of fire so that he took the judgment of God that we could be spared from it. And that knife reminds us of the spear that would be thrust into Jesus' side with which blood and water flowed. Blood and water are the two birthing fluids. Interestingly, a bride came from the first Adam from his side, and through the second Adam, a new bride was birthed out of his side, the church, washed clean through the blood of Jesus Christ of which we are all blessed to be a part of. And it says the two of them went together at the end of verse 6. Abraham and Isaac, they walked together. See, all this was being done in complete unity and harmony. Just as Jesus came to fully do the will of the Father, surrendered his will to the Father's will. Some have a twisted theology that God was a a vengeful God, and that the sacrifice of his son was akin to cosmic child abuse. There are those that look to God and think, how, how could I ever worship a God that would do that to his son? But nothing could be further from the truth. This was the loving and gracious heart of our Heavenly Father who came to rescue humanity of which Jesus delighted in carrying out the work of the Father, in giving his life as a ransom. But notice verse 7. Isaac is wising up a little bit. Uh, he says, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. They said, look, we've got the fire. We've got the wood. But uh, where's, uh, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I think we're missing something here. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering. So the two of them, again, went together. See, Isaac started to take a little stock of the situation. They come Okay, we're going off to worship God with burnt offerings, but don't we kind of need an offering? Got the wood on my back, you got fire, we're all ready to go, but where's the offering? He's starting to get maybe a little worried. But notice this response from Abraham is huge, guys. This is big. What does Abraham say? He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering. Now, that word for is not in the original Hebrew. In other words, what Abraham is saying here is, my son, God will provide himself 
the lamb for burnt offering. In other words, he's going to be the lamb that will be our ultimate sacrifice. God's not just going to provide a lamb. He's going to provide himself in and through his son, Jesus Christ, who's going to come and take on our humanity and be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist would say in John chapter 1. My God will provide himself. God's going to provide. God's going to take care of this. God's going to be the one that's going to be that ultimate sacrifice. That is amazing. Abraham had a full trust in the Lord that he will take care of everything. Do we have that kind of trust in the Lord that all is forgiven through the sacrifice that he became for us? Are we walking in peace, being surrendered to God? See, lack of peace is often a result of trying to sort things out on our own, trying to make things happen in and of ourselves, rather than resting in what God has done and will continue to do, and believing by faith that God has already sovereignly been leading through and will continue to sovereignly lead through each and every situation in my life. When we rest in that sovereignty of God, and that God has already taken care of everything for us and will continue to lead us through, when we can trust in that, suddenly we can rest in peace. Anxiety and stress often comes when we're the ones that are trying to control the situation. Look at verse 9. It says, then, it says, they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Remember, Isaac is, is a young man. This is not... Isaac being forced down upon an altar and being tied up. Isaac could have any moment just kind of said, hey, old man, move aside, man. I'm not doing this. You've gone too far here now. Isaac was stronger, faster than his dad here at this point. Isaac did not, Isaac was willingly laying down his life upon that altar, giving of himself, just as Jesus came and surrendered his life willingly in complete obedience and trust of the Father. John 10, verse 18 says, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father Isaac had power. But he surrendered that in obedience to his father, as Jesus did for us. Abraham is... Got a son down, and Abraham is ready to go all the way with this. He's got the knife ready to thrust down upon his son, who's tied down on the altar. Abraham's not sitting there, okay, all right, well, this is awkward. What are we going to do now? He's not saying, okay, five, four, three, two and a half, two, come on, God. He's, knife is up. And he's ready to come down on his son. Imagine how he was feeling at that time. Think about what's running through his mind and through his heart. How would you have felt in that situation? If you've got a child sitting there, and God says, I want you to sacrifice this child. What would be running through your mind and, and through your heart? Yet Abraham 
believed God. And he believed that this would not be the end. Think about the lengths that God went through to save you and me. He loves us. And he loves us with a love that we can't even comprehend the depths of it. If he went all out like this to save us, don't think that he's going to give up on you down the road. He will continue to pursue you with an everlasting love. Keep resting and abiding in his goodness. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things, or give us all things? Abraham would be spared, but God would go all the way in giving up his son for you and for me. If he loved his son, and was willing to give up his son, how much does he love you and me? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not now, with Christ, freely give us all things? So notice here, verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to, to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So Abraham said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham, I'm sure, was pleasantly surprised for this interruption. I don't think he expected it to happen this way, but most certainly he was grateful to see it unfold this way. Now, you might be looking at this going, how could God ever call Abraham to do that? Because Child sacrifice was a pagan practice. It was a common pagan practice in this day, but it was absolutely condemned by God. Leviticus chapter 20 tells us that. And it must have caused Abraham to really wonder what God was up to in this. But you see, God didn't want Abraham to physically sacrifice Isaac, but he wanted him to willingly surrender his own son in his own heart. To willingly give up all things to say, God, I don't know how you're going to unfold your promise if my son is gone, but I'm going to trust you. He wanted Abraham to come to a point in his own heart where he's saying, Lord, whatever you say, I'm going to do. And Isaac was as good as dead in Abraham's heart. And that showed that Abraham's love for God was greater than anything else. It revealed that Abraham truly feared God, just as the angel of the Lord says, See, the purpose of testing is to strengthen our character, our commitment, and to build our faith and trust in God. See, through this ordeal, Abraham discovered that obedience to God is always the best thing to do, and God will always provide for us. God will always take care of us when we walk in fullness of obedience to the Lord. We never have to fear. We never have to fear or question what God might do when we walk in obedience. Because we know that when we walk in obedience, God will always have his best for us. And he will always take care of us. Abraham shows us that very clearly here. The angel of the Lord, again, as we've seen through the book of Genesis already, as you see throughout Old Testament scripture, the angel of the Lord is that pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. A theophany or more so a Christophany. Jesus coming and showing himself he's eternal and he's revealed himself 
several times throughout the Old Testament. So we've seen this journey of testing. We've seen this journey of trust. Here now we look at that journey of triumph. Look at verse 13. So Abraham, he lifted his eyes, and he looked, and there behind him was a ram that was caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. How beautiful. Now, you might be asking, why a ram? Wouldn't it be more proper or fitting with this picture for it to be a lamb? Wouldn't that have completed the typology or the picture here? Well, understand, in this picture, there would only be one lamb of God given once for all for the forgiveness of sin, and that is Jesus Christ. So a ram is provided, and he's provided as a substitute. Abraham took the ram as a burnt offering, it says, instead of his son. How beautiful. Matthew 20, 28 says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but his servant to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life. Jesus stepped in and became a substitute for us. We deserved to be on that cross. We deserve to take the judgment of God for our sin, for our crimes, for our guilt before God. We deserve it. But Jesus came and he stepped in instead of us. He came to be that ransom that we could be spared, that we could be forgiven. That we could have life in him. How wonderful to see the heart of the Father and the willingness of the Savior to come and do for us that which we couldn't do for ourselves. He stepped in and he became a substitutionary sacrifice to atone for our sin, and not just to cover, but to remove our sins, that we could be brought in, reconciled to the Father, brought into relationship with Him. So amazing. And Abraham, in verse 14, he called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is one of those seven compound names of God that we see through the Old Testament. This is the Lord will provide is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides. You all remember singing that song in church, Jehovah Jireh. My provider, his grace is sufficient for me. For, nope, just me. I just, uh, apparently I'm the only one that knew that song. Okay. Anybody else remember singing that song? Thank you. All right. You're all like, let him embarrass himself. I'm not going along with that. All right. Those are great. Oh, fun songs there. And then Jehovah Rofeka. Rofeka, I don't even know how to say that. Remember that song? Jehovah Rofeka. No, I don't, there was no song for that one. <laughs> that would be too hard to sing. We should try that, though. That'd be fun. But that's the Lord who heals you. Then there's Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Roy, the Lord my shepherd. Jehovah Sedanku, the Lord our righteousness. Or Sedkenu. And then Jehovah Shammah, the Lord, is present. Here's how the Lord has revealed himself throughout Scripture. And, and these compound names is just, again, God being all things for us. Just as he showed to, to Moses at the burning bush, who shall say something? I am who I am. 
the all, the, the, the all existing one, the self existing one. I am everything that you need me to be. I will be for you. And we see that in all these terms here that God is all these things for us here. And so much more. Boy, we, we will, I'm sure, never know the fullness of all that God is for us and all that God has done for us. So the angel of the Lord, verse 15, called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, verse 18, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. The promise that Abraham has heard a few times already now is given again. Now, this would have taken on even greater significance at this point for all that Abraham has just gone through. To hear that promise, it's like, yes, God, I am so aware that you are accomplishing this work here, and that I do not ever, ever need to question or doubt that you're going to fulfill all your promises. Abraham has seen this in a, in a greater, more wonderful way now. As he's been brought through this fellowship of suffering, now growing in that intimacy with the Lord, understanding God's heart in these things like not many people have been able to. Spurgeon says, the promises of God sh- uh, never shine brighter than in the furnace of affliction. What two men did on a lonely altar would one day bring blessing to the whole world. And that's the beauty of that too. Is that when we walk in, in obedience to the Lord, when we walk in faithfulness to the Lord, guess what? Our lives get to have a greater significance in being a blessing to other people. Abraham and Isaac, because of their faithfulness and obedience, again, God says, oh, in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because Abraham has passed now with flying colors, just you see that reward he receives. Not only seeing God so wonderfully provide for him, but receiving an incredible blessing that God would not only enrich his life, but all the nations would be blessed because of him. Abraham continued on in triumph, didn't he? Walking in victory here. Though the path was not always easy, he knew the Lord in a different way after this day. And as a result, He walked in a different frame of mind with a different perspective and a different attitude. This is that walk of triumph that Abraham is now experiencing. It's what we can experience when we allow the the Lord to work in us, to mold us and shape us, to not only know him more, but to become more like him. That's the goal, isn't it? To be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And you see, we accomplish that through tests. We don't get conformed to the image of Christ by having God put a hedge of protection around us and just keep us comfortable in some cocoon. As much as we would like that, wouldn't we? I I wouldn't mind that. But it's through testing that we become conformed into the image of Christ to become more like him. It's through learning of him, trusting in him, seeing his awesome provision in our lives that bring out the triumphant life that we can enjoy as believers Listen, this is one of the most remarkable stories in the Bible because it not only speaks to us practically, but it speaks to us very prophetically. That 
powerful, precious picture that points to Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us so that we can live triumphantly and victoriously in and through him. Verse 20, we'll finish up this chapter. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that it was told to Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Huz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother. <laughs> Great names there, aren't they? Boy, let's just let's keep going. Ruz and Cuz. And, okay, no, they don't do that. They, that's weird. Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Abraham, or Aram, I should say. Uh, Hesed, Hazel, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milka bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was uh, Ruma, also bore Teba, Geam, Theash, and Maka. So here's a story now, or a, an accounting of Abraham's brother, who has 12 sons, of which Abraham's going, thanks, Lord. <laughs> 12 sons, yeah, it'll make me suffer just to have two. Thank you for that. That's real kind of you there. But he's got 12 sons. And you might look at that and go, well, why is this kind of introduced there? Well, Again, we see the continued scarlet thread weaving through Scripture because it's here through this line that Isaac's wife would come. Rebekah is mentioned here, right? You see Rebekah there in verse 23. And this would be this, the, the wife for Isaac that we're going to see happen in chapter 24. The scarlet thread continues. So listen, let's just remind ourselves in closing here tonight this beautiful picture that we see of Isaac being a type uh, of Jesus Christ. How so? Well, first of all, we saw in chapter 21, last time we were in Genesis, that Isaac was born miraculously. Jesus himself conceived by the Holy Spirit through a virgin, miraculous birth. Isaac foreshadows that. Then we see the love being referred to as between Abraham and Isaac, a father and a son, the first mention of love in the Old Testament. The first time love is mentioned in the New Testament is that Christ's baptism spoken from the father to the son. And then the first time it's mentioned in the Gospel of John is in John 3.16, also showing us the love God had for the world that caused him to send his son. 1 John 3.1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Then we see that Abraham saw Isaac as dead in his eyes for three days. Three days walking as though Isaac was a dead man. Jesus died in the grave for three days. But hallelujah, both were delivered on that third day. Isaac was possibly in his 30s, maybe 33 at that point. Lad meant young man. He willingly laid down his life for his father. He didn't fight back. Jesus, too, surrendered his life. He was obedient even unto death, as Philippians 2, verse 8 tells us. Isaac carried that wood upon his back. There was fire and a knife. Jesus carried his cross. He received the fire of God's judgment for our sin, a spear being thrust into his side. Interestingly, Isaac isn't going to be seen again in the scripture after his deliverance here until we see him again in Genesis 24. What happens in Genesis 24? Where he receives his bride. How fitting is that? Because Jesus, after his resurrection, ascended to the Father. After spending some time walking about with his disciples and being seen. Ascended to the Father where he sits at the right hand where he won't be seen again until he comes to gather his bride for himself. What's interesting in chapter 24 is we're going to see, I don't want to give anything away because we're going to see some wonderful things in Genesis 24 again, but we see that they're going to be led in Genesis 24 by Abraham's servant, who's not going to be named. 
Just as the Holy Spirit comes into the world very anonymously to do what? To gather a bride for Christ. Well, we see that all being seen so clearly through the work of Jesus Christ. Listen, the picture is perfect. Today, because of what Christ has done for us, we can face those tests knowing that God will not give us anything that he's not prepared us for or anything that he hasn't endured himself and knows, knowing that he will strengthen us through it. We can walk in trust knowing that he is our best at heart. And we can live triumphantly because Christ has paid the price for our sins. We have a glorious hope now of being with him forever and ever. Oh, may we keep learning through those tests, trusting the Lord and living triumphantly in him. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, for how wonderfully your word is put together. How we can spend a night like this in Genesis and see so clearly the work that you've had planned all through the foundation of the world and bringing your son to be that sacrifice for us, to provide life, forgiveness of sin. How he would die and rise again. And it's seen so clearly in this picture of Abraham and Isaac. God, your word is so good. Lord, it's something that we can trust and depend on. And I pray that we would be individuals tonight that are learning the value of tests. I speak for myself, but I don't like tests. But I know that I learn and I grow from them. And it allows me to develop a deeper faith and trust in you, a closer walk with you that I can live triumphantly as a result. Thank you that you've done that all in each of our lives, Lord. And I pray that we would grow as a result, that we would keep learning, keep building faith and trust in you, being dependent upon you, and living victorious, triumphant lives because of all that you've done for us, Jesus. We love you. Thank you. Thank you, God, for the great love you've displayed upon us in giving us your son as a sacrifice. We don't deserve it. It's by your grace, by your love. You've demonstrated the greatness of your love in giving us your son. So we thank you and we praise you for that, Lord. Lead us on from here tonight, we pray in your name. Amen.